Okay, there are saints, Matthew chapter 22. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we come here and it is our desire to again be washed. That you would take and use your word to wash our feet. As we walk on this world and in this world, Lord, just uh, dust, tribulations, trials, Father, they come upon us. And yet, in, in you, Lord, there's peace. In you, there's joy. And Father, we want to be those who receive your message, who receive your word. That we would be those who, when you call us to action, that we would come. And even if it's just coming and, and celebrating you and doing nothing else, Lord, bid us to come and help us come and not make excuses why we can't come into your presence, why we can't come and simply celebrate you, celebrate your son. Every single day, Lord, you want us to come and rest in you and worship you. You just say that you who are weary and heavy laden is come. You want to give us rest. We who are thirsty, come. You want to give us torrents of living water. We who have any need, you want to be the fulfillment of that need. And so draw us into your presence. Draw us into that perfect love and perfect peace and power, Lord. Just the power. Just free us from all these pursuits that we're doing. Just knit us to your heart, we ask in Jesus' name. All the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 22. We finished 21. It took us a couple weeks to get through, but there was a lot. And the same thing will probably be happening. We'll get as far as we can, and then we'll pause, and then we'll finish it up probably in the next week is what I'm thinking. But let's just see what happens as we dive into this. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 1, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and they went their ways, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized the servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Verse 7, when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, burned up their city, and he said to the servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Verse 9, therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into the outer darkness, 
where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus begins this parable after he had given another parable, parable about a, a landowner. And within that landowner, he talked about a king, he talked about sending his son. And so again, you see the same thing that's happening, the same, in a sense, subjects that are going on as far as who are the subjects of this parable. Of course, there's the king. There is a son who's going to be being married. The bride itself is simply assumed. And then you have the servants who are going out, who are trying to bring the invitees into this wedding. And then you have um, those who are invited. And we're looking at the response of many different things here. We'll see the response of those who are invited to the wedding. We're going to see how some simply are indifferent. There are others who are not only indifferent, but they come to the place of being hostile, where, um, you know, verse 6, the rest, they, they seized the servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. And then you're going to see a, a third response to this beautiful invitation to come and be with the celebration of the Son, and the third thing that we see is the man who comes and he doesn't have on a wedding garment. So you see some that are simply indifferent. They, they never make it in. There are some who are hostile towards the invitation and they don't want anything to do with it. And not only do they don't want anything to do with it, but they're trying to prevent it. They're, they're so angry, they're so hostile towards it, they even want to murder those who are given the invite. And then you have the one that actually receives the invitation, comes into the invitation, but he doesn't want to change. He says, I'm going to come in just like I am, which is good, but now I'm not going to change. I'm not going to allow you to do any work within me. And so you see these three different responses that come in through this invitation. But initially, there in verse 1, Jesus answered, he spoke a parable again. He spoke to them again by parables and said, Now a parable, as we've already seen here in Matthew, parables have two points to them. One, anyone who has a desire to want to learn spiritual truths or directives from heaven, a parable is giving so that it's a word picture and you go, oh, I can see it and I want to come and receive it. And I want to walk what it is that I receive. The other thing about a parable is this, that those who don't want it, they can see and, and hear how the story and the events transpire and they can absolutely reject it. So a parable has two points. It's not an absolute factual you know, statement, but it's an image, it's a picture a story to gives you if you want to receive the things of heaven you can say yes i got it i want to walk this if you don't want to you can reject it because it's like well it was just a story it meant nothing so that's what the parable has and of course jesus taught his disciples why parables were so that in hearing you can hear and not hear or if you want to hear then you can hear so within this parable, it begins where the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Now again, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom to hear. 
that Jesus says, I'm the one who's setting up this whole new kingdom. You can be a part of it. And so when you become a part of the kingdom of heaven, when you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that that's who you have your allegiance to. When you're here on earth, you're simply are an ambassador. So it's one of those things, and I love the people who are gung-ho for America. And keep in mind, I'm a Marine. I'm gung-ho for America. I have an American flag on my house. Um, but I'll tell you what, what I'm more gung-ho for, more than America, more than all of what America could be great, I'm more gung-ho for bringing one person at a time into this glorious kingdom that is going to be eternal. I want to bring them into the kingdom of heaven. And this is what he's talking about. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king that arranged a marriage for his son. So within this now, we're seeing here there's types and there's images that are being portrayed. There's a king, and of course we know that's what? That's the father in heaven, but he's portrayed now as a king. He's saying that I want you to come to this marriage of my son. And that's another type, that's another image that is there throughout the scripture. And it's, it's one of those things that when you look at these types of where you see here, one is the king. He's the type of the father. He's the one in control. He has the authority. You have now the marriage of the son. And in the New Testament, it speaks of what? The bride of Christ, the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ. And so we have this beautiful image of we're the bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, that image of the wife of Jehovah, Israel is the wife. And you see all these, these images that are overlaid. Now keep in mind, those images are great. They are amazing. But here's the thing. Sometimes we take images and we make them, because an image is... If you look at biblical thing, an image is a layer on top of a foundation. You have foundations that we've covered in Genesis, foundations that we're looking at here in Matthew. When you have foundations, they're the bottom, bottom, solid foundation never changes. Now on top of all those foundations, what we're going to see is this. The scriptures will throw layers over layers over layers, building on those foundations, but those layers are not the foundation, they're lesser, if you follow me. Don't get me wrong, all scripture is amazing, all scripture is God's breathe, but foundational truths are unchanging. Images now can be built upon, and images are used to portray a certain image that you want. When we take those images and we make them into a foundation, what happens is we begin to set foundations where they're not. In other words, when we talk about the bride of Christ, we talk about the wife of Jehovah, we talk about how we're his sheep and he's the, 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 the shepherd. Um, we talk about here, there's servants that are going out. Are we the servants? Are we the bride? Are we the sheep? Are we, you know, who are we? Well, they're all images that are set down to, here's God and authority, and he's going to use all these layers, if you will, all these images to build upon the foundation that he's creator, we're his creation, he wants to have a relationship with us, which he does, and he does that through the work of Jesus Christ. But all these other images and how those relationships work and how they intertwine, they're all images. 
They're all layers on top of a foundation. The warning being is so often, I'll just give you the one, how we as a church, we claim that we are the bride of Christ. And that's what we do. We're the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. Well, what does it mean to be the bride? And, and is that a foundational truth or is it a layer on top of a foundation? Well, yeah, we are the bride of Christ. That's an image, but we're also a sheep. So is he married to sheep? Where, where do, and how can you take the bride of Christ image and say this one's way up here, but the image of we're a sheep is down here? How do we as people take images and we can set one up here and the other down below? How can we take one image and raise it up? God says that he is the vine. We are the branches. So are, are we branches? Is he married to a tree? Don't tell me he's a hippie. God is a hippie at heart. He's a tree hugger. He loves us branches. No, they're, they're images. And so keep in mind that they're foundational truths that we have to look at. And there's other types, there's other images, and it's great to see us as those things. But be careful that we don't take those types and images and make them a foundational core issue. And we do that a lot. And when you make a foundational core issue of an image, then what you're trying to do is now you're trying to put all these layers on top of it, but you can't because it's not foundational, so it'll never stand. So those are truths that we're going to be looking at as we continue through these, um, these books, as we, especially when we get back to Exodus in a few months, probably, hopefully. And, um, but as we do, I want you to see that this is important as we're looking at images and it's just one of those things where the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. You have the father, you have the son, and you have this event that is taking place. And this event is going to be a wedding. It's a marriage. So you have the marriage of the son. Within these events, just so that you know, there's usually going to be more than one invitation. When the king sets up this whole thing that says, okay, I'm going to set up a wedding for my son. He's going to set out the first invitation saying, be ready. I'm going to be sending you a second invitation that when everything is finally done, then I'm going to ask you to come. So there isn't a rush that everything has to be done on a certain day. You just continue through what you're doing till everything is done. Once all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted and everything is accomplished. And he's going to send out a second invitation saying, it's now done, now come. And this is what we're looking at here. So the kingdom of heaven, verse 2, is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. If you want a good thing just to kind of look at, not a king, but a prince, um, wanting to arrange a marriage for his son, just on your own time, go back and read Genesis chapter 24 where Abraham sends out his servant to say, I want you to go find a bride for my son Isaac. And how incredible is that, that he goes and he finds this bride. And of course, that bride that is Rebecca is so much as Eliezer goes and finds this bride. It's a huge, again, picture um, symbol of how the Holy Spirit brings us and say, I want to bring you into this beautiful relationship with my son. So we do see here that this king arranges a marriage for his son and he sends out verse 3 servants to call those who were invited to the wedding 
and they were not willing to come. So they had the first invitation, now they get the second invitation. When the second invitation comes, they are indifferent. Come and, and enter into the joy of your Lord. Come into this beautiful relationship. Come enter, enter into this celebration of Jesus just bringing his bride to himself. How glorious is that? And people are like, yeah, that's, that's nice for you and that may work for you, but I'm okay. You go love the whole Jesus thing. I'll kick back here. And they're not willing to come. And maybe you have thought that, that there were certain people that in your own mind is like, yep, I know God invited you. I know that he invited you. And so you're like, I need to tell you about the king. I need to tell you about his son. I need to tell you about this beautiful relationship that he wants us to come into the celebration. Come. And all of a sudden, the people that you thought were, yeah, these are, I know God's calling. I know God's got his hand up. If I can get this person in the church, if I can get this person to receive Christ, what an amazing thing that would be. And, you know, when we think about, you know, how many times have you heard where someone who's a celebrity actually says, oh, I gave my heart to Jesus. And the whole of Christianity, all the church, like, whoa, this is the greatest thing. And all of a sudden, you know, a few months later, they fall away. It's like, well, that was fun for a while, but now we're on to the next thing. So importantly here is he went to those who were invited. Now, this is a picture of Israel. They were already there, but they were not willing to come. Again, verse 4, he sent out other servants. Tell those who are invited. So he doesn't just end it with once. And I think this is important when witnessing. When you go and you tell someone about Jesus, you tell someone about this beautiful celebration, the relationship that you can have with them, all of a sudden they're going to be like, eh, not interested. Well, you know what? So What? I'm going to come to you again, and I'm going to come to you again, and I'm going to come to you again. And then, you know, hopefully by the time the Spirit begins to work, you will be interested. So he goes in verse 4, and this is where if you're a highlighter, if you're an underliner, put that again. Because I think it's important that when we go and we share our faith, if they turn us down, it's like, well, you know what? That's okay. I'm going to come again. I'm going to leave the door open and I'm going to come and I'm going to share with you again about who Jesus Christ is, about this beautiful invitation that is granted. And so those people that we think, I know you're for the kingdom. I know you should be. Well, again, verse four, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited. Now, notice what he says. I have prepared my dinner my oxen fatted cattle are killed and then he says this and all things are ready now if you take just those two statements i have prepared everything was mine you don't have to bring anything it's all done i have prepared all things are ready and then he says come I don't know how many times people say, well, I got to do this first. You don't have to do anything first. He's going to take care of all of that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added. What Jesus does is this. He doesn't clean his fish before he catches them. He catches his fish and then he cleans them. 
This is the beauty of just how God begins to work. He says, you come in and I'll begin that process. I'll begin to do that. So I love the heart where he says, listen, there's nothing for you to do. Everything is ready. You only have to do one thing. Come. Just say, here I am. Just come. He makes it so easy. He makes it so amazing that there's nothing that you and I have to do other than just come and enter into everything that he has prepared that all things are now ready. That if you come in, it's done. It's been prepared. And so he then goes in verse 5, but they made light of it. Now, for those of you that are following through on Wednesdays and on Sundays at Calvary Chapel, Milwaukee, we're actually going through the book of Hebrews. And there's a portion in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. I just want to read it to you. It's one of the warnings that he gives, but he makes this statement. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So, this term neglect, how shall we escape if we neglect so um, great a salvation? That term neglect is the exact same word that is, is used here in Matthew to be made light of. So what they do is they simply say, I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to neglect it. I'm going to just forget about it. I'm going to make light of it. I'm going to pretend like it's nothing of value. And they went their ways. One went to his own farm and one went to his own business. So one went out to the country. One went into the city. And you see that you know the invitation was not just to those in one place. They were all over. One goes out to the farm, continues his work. One goes into the city, continues his work. And then it says here where it takes it from those who are indifferent to the gospel, those who are indifferent to the invitation, to those who become downright hostile to the invitation. It says here, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Now, there are some people who are very hostile to the gospel. Not only do they not want to hear the gospel, not only are they not wanting to respond to the gospel, but they're not wanting anyone else to be able to respond to this gospel. They're not wanting anyone else to be able to hear the gospel. And so in their anger, in their animosity, in their own hatred, if you will, in their hostility, what they do is they treated them spitefully, and some they killed. Now, this is true to the nation of Israel when it comes to the prophets. That Some they treated spitefully, some they killed. And these were all people who would say, come into this deeper, more powerful relationship with the king or with God the Father. Well, verse 7, but when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. 
So we see the king now hears about it, and he goes to the point where he now destroys. He says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to enact my vengeance upon you. So when the king hears about what they did to the servants, now understand that there's a judgment that comes. Now, the king himself can do this. Why? Because he's in authority. And as the king is in authority, we begin to see here that he now sends out his army. He begins to destroy those murderers. He burns up their cities. And so as the king begins to do this, we see here that he's going to judge them. There's a passage that you should be aware of in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now the Holy Spirit is that going to be what draws you to Christ. And so there are some who are simply going to reject. And when they reject to that point, and they're destroying the king's servants, he's now going to judge them. And so he does. Now, verse 8. When he sends out his armies, his armies are different than the servants. Keep that in mind. There's a whole different group of people. In verse 8, it says, He says to his servants, again the servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. The first servants came out, and they said, oh, we're going to go to those who were invited. So the servants of God, the prophets of old, went to Israel and said, hey, here's an invitation. Well, some were indifferent, said we're not interested. Some were hostile. They murdered the prophets, those who, the servants of God who came to give the invitation. He said, all right, Israel, you're not worthy. Now he's going to come and he's going to send more servants. Who are these more servants? Well, initially we'll call them the disciples. Then we'll call them the early church. And then we'll call them the folks in the upper room. We'll call them the saints from the upper room. Why? Because he wants us to go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Now it's not just those that we think, oh yeah, you were an invite. You were fine. And the amazing thing is this. In verse 10, those servants went out into the highways. In other words, they went everywhere they could. They gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. I think this is important because sometimes we as Christians think, yep, you're worthy of the invitation. And we look at other people and say, and you're not. And maybe someone else will give you the invitation, but I'm not the one. And we deem who's worthy to receive this invitation. And amazingly, what Jesus says, this is the parable. This is the kingdom of heaven. We go and we invite everyone. We don't get to choose who's the good and who's the bad. Because what happens is this. Regardless of how good you think the person is or how bad the person is, 
The scriptures teach us that we are all unrighteous. There are none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. None of us are worthy. And yet we deem to say, oh, you're good and you're bad. So I'll give you the good person invitation, but I won't give the bad. He says, it's not up to you to judge. And amazingly, think about this for just a moment. All that the Pharisees thought were bad were what? Those are the ones that Jesus went to. As a matter of fact, Jesus would do something so amazing to them. He would actually tell the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, they said to him the first, speaking of who would be the, the one who did the will of his father, and Jesus would say at the end of Matthew 21, 31, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. So would you say that they were in the good category or the bad category? And he says, they're entering in. And so keep this in mind that those that we would say are the bad are entering into the kingdom before those that we would say are the good. The ones who looked all religious on the outside versus the one that looked horrible on the outside. God says, don't worry, on the inside, they're all dead man bones. I'm going to go and I'm going to renew the inward. I'm going to give the inward life. I'm going to give the inward my spirit. I'm going to breathe into them. And as they come to this point, now we begin to see here that he says, it's not up to us to decide is this person worthy or is it not. He says, blanket everyone, give everyone the invitation, whether you think they're good or you think they're bad, because I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that didn't want to invite me because I was in that bad category. There was actually a boss, I kid you not, that he used to do the Catholic sign of the cross whenever I would walk by. And I'll tell you, it's like, okay, whatever you want, if that's what you need to do, but he would have never given me the gospel. It's not like, oh, I need to tell this one. No, he would be afraid that fire would come out of me or something. I have no idea. But people determine who's good. They determine who's bad. And I love what the Lord does. He says, all whom they found, verse 10, both good and bad. And then he said this, and the wedding hall was filled. Do you know what that did to the king? It gave him pleasure. It's filled. Everyone who's supposed to be here, it's filled. And how do we know that it's filled with everyone who was supposed to be there, both the bad and the good? Well, I'm going to take you down all the way to verse 14 for just a second and read it to you. For many are called, but few are chosen. All of those who were there, God says, I chose you to be there. How incredible is that? So when the wedding hall is filled, God says, this is the one. These are the ones that I wanted to be here. These are the ones who have received the invitation and responded to the invitation. So as we're seeing this now, the wedding hall is filled with guests. Now verse 11 but when the king came in to see the guests, 
Now that term, see the guest, it's, it's interesting that he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. That term see would be more properly translated. He came in to inspect. He didn't just say, I'm just going to come and just do a cursory thing. He came in to inspect the guests. And he didn't come in to, to see, okay, well, you know, how are you? Because every single one of them had received this garment, a wedding garment that was prepared for them. Keep in mind that back in verse 4, he says, I have prepared, all things are ready, come. Everything has been prepared, including all of these wedding garments. And so, when the king came in to see the guests, to inspect the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to read you just one verse in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 10 declares this. And have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Verse 12 of Colossians 3. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So it's about here, garments that's been supplied. And as God says, here is my garment I've given to you, put on this new man. Put on that righteousness that God says, here's my gift to you. And as you put on this gift of righteousness, he's expecting you to say, yeah, I'm going to put on this um, wedding garment and I will abide by all that you want me to do because this is your feast. This is your celebration. I'm coming in to participate with you. I'm not coming in to dictate how it should be done. Why? Because you have done it all, have prepared it all. My job is not to prepare something different. My job is just to come and to receive fully everything that you have for me. So when he now comes in verse 12, he says to him, friend. I love it how he doesn't say, hey, putz. He doesn't say, hey, you yokel. He says, friend, why did you come in without a garment? Now, what's inferred is this, that a garment is supplied to everyone who comes in. This man rejects it. And I think it's interesting that we are going to see that there are some people who want to say, I want to come into the wedding. I want to participate in everything, but I don't want to participate fully. I'm still going to be me and I will not be changed and I will not let you do anything different in my life. So when you come into this and you accept the invitation and say, I want to accept the invitation, but I will not be changed. You cannot put anything different on me. At that point, the king says to the servants, verse 13, bind him hand and foot, take him away, 
cast him into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For the person who says, I want to be invited to the invitation, but if you don't allow the Spirit of God to do that work of sanctification in you, in other words, putting on that new man, if you don't allow him that privilege and the authority to say, I'm going to close you first with my righteousness, you cannot come as you are, you can only come with my righteousness, when you take on that garment, understand that there's going to be changes that will take place in your life. If you don't want him to change you, then what you're really saying is this, I'm showing up, but I really haven't accepted the invitation. I'm not indifferent, I'm not hostile, but I will not be changed. And I think it's important because there's some people who say, oh, I've accepted Christ. I accepted Christ when I was three years old. And then what? Well, I've lived my whole life as if he never was my Lord and Savior. But I don't have to worry about it because I remember my parents saying, I accepted him when I was three. It doesn't help if you're what? If you're not allowing that sanctification process of the Holy Spirit. So then he says this in verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. So you have this question that's answered in two ways in this parable. The question is, is why did they come? And why did they not come? So the first question is, why did they come? Well, it says this, when they were called. They came because they were called. Come to the invitation. Come and respond to the invitation. And they went to everywhere in the highways, anyone they could find, both bad and good, they got an invitation. Now, what's unique is this. They got the invitation to come. Some were not willing to come. Some were hostile and didn't come. But there were others who, when they went out in verse 10 and gathered Hall, whom they found both bad and good. And those said, I'm going to come. I'm going to respond to the invitation. So why were the people at the wedding feast? Well, they were there for two reasons. One, because they responded. And two, because they were chosen. I love how the Word of God puts this whole thing in a package. And people, they scratch their heads and they, well, are we chosen or do we, do we choose? Well, the invitation was there. They chose, some chose not to come, and those were the ones who weren't chosen. Some chose to come, and those are the ones who were chosen. So keep in mind, this parable talks about there were some who refused and some who responded some who were called and some who were chosen. And so you have this beautiful dichotomy for us, but to God it works out perfectly. He says, oh, it makes perfect sense to me. When you get to heaven, I'll explain a little bit more. Your brain, your heart will be more opened up where then you can understand how this all works. Because in a sense, it's like you walk through this doorway that on the one side it says, all who will may enter. And you can choose to enter in and choose to enter in and choose to come through the doorway. And you walk through the doorway and you turn around and there's another sign on the other side that says, chosen from the foundations of the world. 
They're both true. Our side and God's side and how he works those things out are his to know. But I love the heart where he again says, there are many who are called. There are some who are going to refuse and some who will respond. And, and I believe that this holds true in two ways. One is there are many times God gives us invitations to say, come and celebrate this. Come and celebrate this. Come do this. And sometimes we're indifferent to the word of God. We're indifferent to his invitation. Other times God says, I want you to come and do this. Like, no, we're, I'm almost hostile because you're telling me I've got to change. I've got to give this up or give that up. And it's like, I don't want to hear that right now, Lord. Don't tell me that right now. How many times when God gives us a word, sometimes we're un- indifferent, sometimes we're hostile. Other times we'll say, okay, well, you can say what you want to say, but I'm not going to change anything. He's not the Lord then. And sometimes we're the responders of this. When God gives a word, and I'll tell you what, there are many times he gives a word, and we often, like in Matthew 13, we look to the parable of the soils, and sometimes we look at this is the final invitation to some receive the gospel, some, you know, they're, they're the, the birds, you don't, the, you know, you plant the seeds on the, the fallow ground, the birds snatch it, they can't receive the gospel, some, it's on that, that shallow ground, immediately it springs up, there's no root, so it withers away, some are okay, they begin to grow, but weeds grow around them, the cares of the world choke them out, and some bear fruit. Sometimes that means it's the gospel. Other times I believe that it's my devotions. How am I going to respond to my devotions? Is my devotions going to hit on a hard heart and the enemy going to immediately snatch it away? Is my devotions going to be on a very shallow heart where, okay, oh, wow, it's really great now. And then, oh, okay, that worked until break time. It worked until lunch. And now what am I going to do? Other times the word is right there. But then the cares of the world, like it's so involved with everything else that those cares just just choke out what God wants to do to me. And there's other times those devotions in the morning, they bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. But this is God and his grace, God and his goodness. And so I think it's important that not only does it hold true where sometimes it's the invitation to the gospel, but sometimes it's just a word of God to you and me. And I think it's a good thing to periodically just say, okay, God, how am I going to respond to this word? Am I going to, am I going to like it? Am I not going to like it? There have been times where people have sat in the church, and I know they're Christians, and I've talked about a very hard subject. And there are people who are just very angry. They're almost hostile. If they could literally turn me off or walk out of the sanctuary, they would, but they know everyone's going to be looking at them, and they don't do that. But there are times where they really want to. And you can just see they're just so angry. They don't want to hear this word. And they get angry with God because, God, you're, you're, you're wanting to just do that work in my heart. I don't want you to do that work. And you're hostile to the word. And there's others that's like, okay, well, I'll hear it. But I'm not changing. Nothing's going to change. I'm, I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to leave just the way I came in. And your word's going to have no effect on me. So... All of these things could be us. We are the servants. We are those who hear the words. The only thing that aren't us is the king and the son. We're not them. Anyone who thinks they are, like the Jehovah Witness or the Mormons, they're wrong. There's only one God. We're not him. And neither is Muhammad. I'm just going to throw that one out. That's free. Now, in verse 15, I want to share with you that here, 
When the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person or of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled, and they left him, and they went their way. So what's happening now? Jesus has finished giving the parables, and now they're going to begin to question Jesus. Why is this important? Well, there's a passage in the book of Exodus. We'll get there eventually. And in chapter 12, verses 3 through 6, is a very unique picture that is portrayed. Now, during the Passover... In chapter 12, verse 3, says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it, according to the number of persons According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. And now verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the holy assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Notice you get the lamb on the 10th of Nisan, you kill the lamb on the 14th. There is a five-day inspection. The 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, and the 14th, then you kill it on that last day. But there is this time of inspection. So when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the Lamb of God comes, the King of the world, and now what's happening is the religious leaders are beginning this inspection of the Lamb. And they're beginning to say, I want to see, as it says here in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. They're now inspecting the lamb. And so the great way to do this is what? Ask questions. When you ask questions, you can really find out what a person thinks, what a person is like. Um, there's a, a, a beautiful thing. When I do um, premarital counseling, I, I ask questions. And eventually what I try to do is this. It's happened every time, but I'll get together with just the, the, the woman and just the man. And of course, my wife is with me with the woman, so don't think it's just with her. But, so, but I'll have a meeting without the man there and a meeting with the man without the, the, the woman there that are wanting to get married. And I'll just start asking them questions and asking the questions. It's amazing what you can find when you ask questions. You can understand where are their hearts, where are their fears, where are their joys, where are their concerns. But all those come what? You learn who they are because you ask them questions. And that's what they're doing to Jesus. There's an inspection going on. Now, 
I want you to note here that there's going to be three times that they're going to come and inspect Jesus. Initially, in verse 15 and 16, it says the Pharisees, note that Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying. Now, the Pharisees are going to be the religious elite. The Herodians are going to be almost a political group. They're the political elite. And so you have these two groups that would normally be what? Normally would be separate. They wouldn't be buddies. They wouldn't be compadres. They would be, these are the political ones, the Herodians. We don't want anything to do with that. They named themselves after King Herod. We are the Herodians. Um, and the other ones are the Pharisees. We're not of the, the, the political. Um, so they, they wanted to claim, but they said we're of the spiritual, we're of the religious. But the two of them get together. And so as they're together, verse 15 initially, it's the Pharisees who went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. The questions they're asking are not honest questions. They're not sincere questions. They're gotcha questions. That's all they are. I want to try to come up with a question, not to find truth, not to find out who you are, but I want to try to make you look bad with the answer. And so there are some questions that are not sincere. They're not honest. Um, and we see here, that as they begin their questions, initially, they begin with flattery. Beware of flattery. Um, there's a lot of people that will say, oh, I'm going to just want to show you, I just respect you so much, and, and I just have been so blessed by this, and blessed. However, I knew it was coming. <laughs> and, and so this is what they do. Verse 16, they sent to him their disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees, with the Herodians, the, those who were in the political um, elites, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. You teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Now, when he says he doesn't care about anyone, it doesn't mean what, you, what you're thinking, that he just doesn't care about anyone. He doesn't care about their opinions. That's what he's saying. The, the, the so one's opinion about who I am and how I am, it really means nothing to me. And that's where Jesus was. He knew who he was. He knew that his ministry was the Father. He heard from the Father. He only spoke what the Father wanted him to say. He only did what the Father wanted him to do. And he was absolutely free of everybody else's idea of who he should be. Now keep in mind... All of Israel, when he came, all of Jerusalem, had a mind of who he should be. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save now. Not save later, save now. What was the now? It was the Roman occupation. Save us now. Come in like Moses, destroy Egypt. You come into here, Jerusalem, destroy Rome, destroy what it was. Now, when Jesus came in and said, I'm going to save now, he didn't go into the Roman garrison. He went into the temple. He said, this is where salvation takes place. Not when Rome leaves, when, when, when the temple itself is, becomes the house of prayer, when the temple itself becomes where the blind and the lame can come in and receive my touch. 
when, when they're not hindered from coming to me. And so they say, we know that you don't care about anyone or basically about how they think of you, for you do not regard, you do not look at the face of men. You do not look at how they look at you, which is all that they're saying. So verse 17, tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this here is a gotcha question. It's not a sincere question because we know here they're plotting how they might entangle him. There's some questions that are yes and no, or so they want you to say yes or no. I don't know if you've ever seen shows where a lawyer comes up and says, were you here? Well, it's no, 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 just yes or no. Were you here? It's not like that. No, were you here? Yes or no. Now, do you want to know your answer or do you want to know the truth? Because a lawyer isn't wanting the truth. He just wants to say, I want an answer. And I, I'd love to be in that situation where a lawyer tries to say, do you want a yes or no? I would answer in the question. Do you want to know your answer or do you want to know the truth? What a great statement that would be. But Jesus here... Where they said, listen, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, if he says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then they're going to, all of the people who hate the Roman occupation, well, he's claiming Caesar as what? Caesar claims himself a god, and as a god, he's collecting all these taxes. Is Jesus saying that Caesar's a god? Who's he thinking Caesar is? Why should we have to pay taxes to this Roman occupation? Aren't we sovereign? Shouldn't we be able to um, you know, set up our own rules and our own regulations? And so if he said yes... Man, they're going to hammer him for being one who actually comes alongside Rome and is against the people. But if he says, no, it's not lawful, then they're able to turn him over to the Roman authorities and say, here's a man, and he's absolutely against Rome. He's actually calling, telling the people, don't pay taxes. Just, just go against Rome. He's, a, he's, he's an instigator. He wants to cause an uprising. This is what he's doing. So if he answers yes or no, yes, he loses. No, he loses. It's almost like flipping a coin. Heads, I win. Tails, you lose. You tell me what you want. And you can say heads, but I win. You can say tails, but you lose. The whole game is what? You lose no matter what you say. So Jesus now... When they say, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or is it not? A good way to look to questions that people ask you about God, about the scriptures is this. First off, what does scripture say about it? And second is, what is God's heart? What does God really want? What is the purpose of this question? And how does God want to deal with the root of what that question is, not just the question itself? And so Jesus perceived their wickedness, verse 18, and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Why are you testing me? He now says in verse 19, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Now what he does is he's turning the tables. 
He's actually saying, when they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He's saying, well, show me the coin. Show me your tax money. So what he's doing now is he's saying, okay, well, if you're asking, is it lawful? You show me what you think is the authority. Show me the coin. So they go in their pockets, they take out their coin, and they hand it to Jesus. When he said, show me the tax money, so they brought him a denarius. So he said to them, and he shows them their coin that was in their pocket, or their coin purse, whose image and whose inscription is this? So they said to him, Caesar's. And they said, okay, well now you've already determined that you already carry Caesar's money. You already carry the coin that says, I see Caesar as authority. It already has a description for Caesar as authority. And so you're already declaring that you already recognize there's an authority that Rome has because you're carrying a coin so that you can pay it taxes. How incredible is that? So he turns the table on them. Now, apparently, Jesus didn't hear about the word faith moment, the word faith movement at this time, because he had to ask them for the coin. Silly Jesus. Now, he should have just said, you know, I just claimed this whole thing, and I would have already had a money purse. But he, he uses this to say, what do you show as authority? What do you already deem as authority? And so as they bring the coin, he says, whose image was on your coin? Whose inscription was on your coin? And then they go, well, it's Caesar's. So he said, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so... What happens is this, that God, as we are citizens of heaven, he's made us ambassadors to what? A government. So we are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, but we're living here in the United States of America, and so we have to do what? Well, we have to pay their taxes. If someone was an ambassador of Russia... And they came here and they're now living in America and they go and they buy something. Do they have to pay taxes? Well, of course they have to pay taxes. Why? Because it's, it's a tax that comes with anything that you want. And so, yes, you have to pay the taxes, but it still means what? You're still a citizen of Russia, but you're here as an ambassador and you have to do what you do. So when God sets up a human government that is over you for a temporary time. Romans 13 says God sets up a government. It's his that he ordains it. He initiates it. And you're, you're accountable to that government for the short time. And I think it's important to say that this United States of America has a temporal authority over certain things. You render unto this that temporary obedience to that authority. Heaven has an eternal authority over you. So you render unto heaven the eternal obedience to that eternal authority. Now here's the deal. Heaven is the eternal authority. Heaven is a greater authority. The government that you're living under is the temporary or the lesser authority. If there 
the dictates of this temporal lesser authority of the government does not contradict the authority of God and what he declares in his word, then what? Surrender to it for the temporary time. However, if it does contradict the greater authority, the eternal authority, then you say what? You tell me. To obey God or man. I'm going to obey God first in everything that he says. If this temporal authority tells me I want you to do this, then I will surrender temporarily to that authority. I will be obedient to that authority because God established it temporarily in my life, in your life. So hopefully that makes sense to what God is trying to teach here. You've got a temporary authority. You give it temporary um, obedience. You have an eternal authority. You give God eternal obedience. And God is the greater one. If the lesser one wants to contradict, you don't listen to that. You always listen to God. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach them. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And it holds true for us as well. We give our obedience to you know, our president, to our governor, to our mayors, um, because they are the ones that God has temporarily put over us. Now, if we don't like what they have to say, then you don't have to like what they have to say. However, God still calls us to what? Pray for them. Doesn't mean because you don't like them, I'm not going to pray for you. But if there's a new mayor, a new governor, a new president, like I'll start praying for them. You have to give obedience temporarily. Now, if they say you cannot preach the gospel, well, guess what? I'm going to preach the gospel. I cannot but preach the gospel. If they say that I have to um, be okay with same-sex marriage, I will tell them I cannot be okay with same-sex marriage. You know. I don't have the authority, but God will never change his word. He created the male and female, and the two of them, not three, not one male and two females, or two females and a male, or, or one female and two males, so you can't have this multiple. He, male and female, he joined those two together. That's the foundation of marriage, and only that. There are no exceptions to that ever, ever, ever. Male, female, those two join together, and what God has put together, let not men separate. So there are certain things when Caesar makes a dictate, if it's to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to have you not meet, you know, in the upper room, but you got to go on a video until we figure out this whole COVID thing, then you know what, we're going to pop it on a video. When they say, well, you can meet with a mask, then we'll meet with a mask. When they say no more mask mandate, now let's hug. <laughs> you know, now we're good. We're 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 fine. And so we'll we'll have those things, but they haven't contradicted what God said as far as preaching the gospel. We had to do it a little bit differently for a season, but it was a season, and we render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, temporary obedience, but we'll render unto God the things that are God's. And so hopefully that makes sense to you. And when they heard these words, they marveled and they left him and they went their way. So at this point, while they're there, they're now just floored, flabbergasted. They can't believe everything that they're hearing and they just simply walk away. Now, 
as we come into this next now, the Sadducees begin to say, I'm going to be one, and I'm going to now try to see how you are, and I'm going to inspect you too. So the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and shall raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died and he, he had married and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. And likewise, the second also and the third and even to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now the Sadducees have come and they say there's no resurrection. They believe that there's no spiritual. There's here and so just it's okay to be in the carnal because there is no afterlife. So that's where the Sadducees are. And so they believe that there's no resurrection. They came and they asked him saying, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife. So, this is that, that law of the Leverite marriage. So, if the, the one, the oldest one marries a woman, he dies, and then a near kinsman can come, and he could bring her in. You want a good book to read? Read the book of Ruth, with, with Ruth and Boaz. And as she, her husband, dies, Boaz now takes her, and with, with you know, Naomi's blessing. And so, Naomi now has... A heritage where at one point she would have not had it. And so Moses instituted this through God because there had to be this kinsman redeemer. Eventually we see Boaz as a great type. Now through Boaz will eventually come David. Through David will become Jesus. So Boaz is in the lineage of Jesus. And amazingly we see that here Boaz is this kinsman redeemer who is a type of Jesus Christ being what? I'm your kinsman. I'm a man. I'm going to be the one to redeem everything, you back to God. And so what the Sadducees do is they try to show how crazy and how foolish this resurrection would be. Because when you have these rules that were set up on earth, where a man had a, a wife, and then he dies, and then his brother has her, and then verse 25 says, now there were with us seven brothers, the first died after he married and having no offspring. He left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third, even to the seventh. So seven brothers married this one woman. All of them died. And last of all, the woman died. They're all dead. And now they're saying, how crazy is this resurrection going to be? Because when she gets to heaven, well, whose wife is she going to be? Now, here's the problem. Too many people think that the resurrection life is just a continuation of our earthly life. Let me say that again. 
Too many people are thinking that your resurrection life is going to be a continuation in some form of your earthly life. Let me tell you, no. Night and day difference. We're going to be known just as we're known. It's not going to be where I'm going to have to talk to you and ask you. I'm going to just know you. You're just going to know me. We're going to be transparent in such a way that everything is going to be open before God and open before one another. And when we realize what we've been saved for, none of us are going to judge anyone else because we're going to realize none of us have any room. Because why? God's just going to show us His grace and His grace and His grace. And we're all there by His grace. And what happens is this. We aren't going to be given into marriage. All of a sudden, the relationship of marriage is what? Well, in the sense that type is we're all now going to be what? Married to the Son. We're all going to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's going to be our deepest, most intimate relationship with Jesus. And I'm going to, when I first read this, I struggled with that. I was so angry with God. How could you not let me have my wife in heaven? You're supposed to be a good God. And he, you know, literally in my youth as a Christian, my zeal, I wanted, you You can't do this. It's just wrong. And God, eventually, as I grew, he says, you're going to have even a more intimate and more perfect and more beautiful relationship with your wife. And then most basically, you're going to have it with everybody else as well. You don't need to have this earthly connection in heaven because it's heaven. You don't want the things that are, the things of the earth are going to just pass away. And you don't want just the things of heaven. You want the glory of the sun. And so at this point, they ask this question, this very foolish question to Jesus, verse 28, therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be for they all had her? Well, I love Jesus' answers to them. You are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, you have no clue. First of all, you don't know your scriptures. Um, you don't fully understand them. You are mistaken, one, because you don't know the scriptures. And two, you don't know the power of God. You don't know what God is doing there in heaven and what God is going to transform you in and what this relationship is going to be. It's not going to be a continuation of your earthly life. Now he says in verse 34, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given into marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So in verse 30, he says, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given into marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. It's weird. There's this whole trying to say, you know, that the angels are sexless that there isn't really a male there isn't really a woman they're all kind of like eunuch angels and so because of that there really needs to be no marriage and it's like i don't know where they get that part into it but there's a whole teaching that's out there about what angels are and how they are understand that the relationship of intimacy is with the person in god that's the greatest intimacy that's going to be and all of us want to be included in that intimacy and all of us want to be a part of that intimacy. So in the resurrection, 
marriage isn't the key. I, the, the key is not going to be this vertical relationship as much as what? That horizontal one. In other words, it's not the relationship with the saints that have been saved. It's my relationship with Jesus Christ that is first and foremost in everything. Remember now, all the elders, all of the creatures are doing what? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And I want to say, Diane, can we go out? I don't want to do that. I don't, that, that's not going to be the key. I'm focusing on holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And here's the Lamb and the elders casting their crowns before him. You are worthy, O Lamb, to take away the sins of the world. You're worthy of this new praise, this new worship, glory, honor, praise, all glory, all honor, all, everything is yours. And I'm not going to be thinking like, Diane, you want to do something later? You understand how that's not going to be the key when I'm in heaven. Everything is Him. And, 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 it's, and, and I don't want it to end. I don't want to say, let's do something different now. Because this is the most incredible thing that is happening. So we see here this beautiful thing in heaven. And He says, it's not going to be this side relationship. It's going to be the forward relationship with, with God. So he says, one, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given into marriage, but they're like the angels. In other words, the angels don't marry. In other words, Gabriel's not married to some, you know, like, like Jan the angel. He's just not. So you don't have that in heaven. Neither will we be like that when we're in heaven. But then he says this. For the resurrection, verse 30, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you're a highlighter, if you're a note taker, grab this down. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Note what Jesus is saying. God spoke to you this passage. How incredible is that? Now here, he's going to be quoting from a passage that is way back in Exodus chapter 3. And we'll get there sometime, and eventually we'll get to Exodus. But he's speaking now, he's way back in that time when God was speaking to Moses there with the burning bush. God was speaking to you Sadducees. He was speaking to you of his heart. And understand what a powerful word this is. What was spoken to you by God. Let me just help you out here. When you open up your Bible tomorrow morning to read devotions, I'm going to tell you right now, read what was spoken to you by God. This word is God-breathed. This word is just God in His greatness. And so... He simply says that I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, notice what God is declaring to Moses. He didn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham. And I used to be the God of Isaac. And I was the God of Jacob when he was alive. No, he's saying, I am presently right now the God of Abraham. I am presently right now the God of Isaac. I am presently right now the God of Jacob. 
I am the God of the living. So he's saying, you have to understand, they are all right now alive. They are not dead. They are now at a place waiting for me to usher them to heaven. Yes, but they are now very much alive. And so these Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, Jesus has said, man, and I love what he said, you're mistaken not knowing the scriptures because God spoke to you through that word. Now, how incredible is that? To realize, man, I missed it. I missed it. And I'll tell you what, too often we are going through our devotions or we're going through our reading and we fail to realize that we're reading what God has spoken to us. And... To be honest with you, every time that I open my Bible, I, I want to have that mindset, and I usually do. God, what do you want to speak to me today? What, what do you want to tell me about you and about your heart, about me and my heart? And what is it that you want us to do today, Lord? And it just frees me up. Read what was spoken to you by God. I think it's just a beautiful passage that if, if there's anything that you memorize tonight, let, let that be it. Read what was spoken to you by God. When the multitudes heard this, boy, they were astonished. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And then the question is, how many times do we read this? And have you not read what was read? Have you not read? Jesus said to these Sadducees, this was written for you. God said, I'm gonna, I know you're coming. I know you're going to be confused. Let me help you out here. Let me put it in the word so that I can speak to you my heart and my truth so that you won't be confused and you won't have to come to Jesus with this stupid question. But they didn't get it. They didn't want it. And, and I think, you know, we need to be those who really say, God, I want to have your word speak to me. Let it be you breathing life breathing power, breathing hope, breathing peace, breathing comfort, breathing resurrection power to just love you and, and worship you, which is what we're going to see when we get next week. Because we're going to stop now. Um, I knew we were going to put a pause in. I didn't know how far we're going to get, but this is as far we're going to get tonight. So, Father, we are so so blessed that tonight we read what was spoken to us by you, Lord. Every single word that we read from, from, from Genesis 22, verse 1 to Genesis 22, verse 33 was what you wanted to speak to us. And Father, I pray that we are those who receive that we do not become indifferent to this word, that we do not become hostile to want to change the word or change the meanings or change foundations or change layers, but that we'd be open and honest to the truth, that we would begin to grow and that our heart would be, Lord, we want to build, we do want to build, but we want to build on what is a solid foundation. And once we know it is that foundation, we want to build as much as you allow us, Lord. 
So keep speaking that word. Keep speaking it. But Lord, Lord, we want this word to change us. We don't want you to come in and say, why aren't you changed? Why aren't you wearing something different? Why aren't you allowing this invitation to move you in this place to transform you? Lord, do that through your spirit. Do that through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.